as we go through the days of sitting and walking here together. We use the quality of mindfulness as the central feature for developing and deepening practice. It's truly a key quality that allows for clear seeing and understanding of how we create suffering for ourselves and of what it takes to stop creating suffering here and now and be more free, more at ease and at home within ourselves, within this world. In addition to mindfulness, there are a number of other qualities of the heart and mind that are most essential to this process of understanding and of liberation. There's a group of these inner qualities called indriya, or shaping faculties. And five of these are known as the so-called spiritual shaping faculties. That's what I would like to talk about tonight. These five qualities are faith, trust, confidence, that's number one, and energy or effort, then mindfulness, number three, and collectedness or concentration, and finally, insight or wisdom. It's these qualities which we need to strengthen if we wish to deepen our understanding of life, our relationship to life. The common function of these five qualities consists in exercising a dominating or governing or perhaps shaping influence over the other emotional and mental qualities that are present and associated with them and over bodily experiences that are present at that time. The word indriya derives from the Pali word indra or the Sanskrit word inda or indra which means ruler or governor or lord. Indra is said to be the king of the devas or the gods. So these qualities or factors rule or influence, determine or shape the mind state in which they are present. Thus they are also called determining or sometimes controlling faculties because they bring their negative, their unwholesome opposites under control, we could say. Faith, trust, confidence, keeps doubt, fear, worry, discouragement, and lack of devotion under control. Energy, effort, overcomes laziness and drowsiness. Mindfulness eliminates unawareness, quite obviously. Collectedness and concentration controls restlessness and distractedness. And wisdom finally dissolves ignorance and delusion. So they're very 
powerful and very helpful, wholesome, positive qualities. The first one of these qualities is faith or trust. In the Buddhist tradition, it is defined in a very particular way. It's defined as being well-established confidence in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. What might sound like a religious statement is actually quite meaningful, even if you're not interested in religious statements. What it really means is it's faith and trust into awakening from delusion, faith and trust into our potential for awakening, for liberation. Also faith and trust into the awakened ones. Buddha. The word Buddha means someone who is awakened. So faith and trust in Buddha here really means in that capacity within each one of us to awaken, to develop wisdom, to understand things clearly. It also means faith and trust into the teachings and the way, ways and means which help us to recognize the universal laws and the true nature of reality. And any teachings and any ways and means that help us to understand in a correct, appropriate way and that bring us into harmony with the way things are in life, with the laws of existence. And that is what is meant by dharma. It also means faith and trust in those who have walked the path before us, and those who walk ahead of us and together with us, sangha. In very practical terms, in our meditation here, it means we trust this process of awakening, of seeing what is, of seeing what the nature of things really is. And we trust that understanding and directly feeling how we create suffering within and how we can be free will move our hearts and minds to relate more and more in wise and compassionate ways. We trust in this clarifying and healing process rather than reacting with our old strategies of trying to fix things the way we would like them to be. Faith, trust in this sense has many helpful functions. It is said to appease the upheaval and commotion of the tormenting emotions of heart and mind, of greed, of anger, fear, anxiety, separateness. It brings relief. When there's trust, when there's faith, we can relax, we can open. Trust purifies the state of mind in which torment is present. A text says, just as the water-purifying jewel of a legendary universal ruler 
dissolves mud and algae and purifies and cleans the water, just so does trust and faith and confidence purify and clarify the heart and mind. Also, faith and trust acts as a gateway for all the wholesome and beautiful qualities of heart and mind. In other words, when this trust is present, then openness, generosity, kindness, care, and all the other wonderful, beautiful qualities are present. It's a wonderful and desirable quality in our life, and in our practice. Texts speak of three kinds of faith or trust. Right or enthusiastic faith or trust, then verified faith or trust, and thirdly, unshakable faith or certainty. The first one of them, bright, enthusiastic faith, can arise when we meet an inspiring person, maybe hear a convincing discourse or teaching or an expression of wisdom. For some, it can arise through a piece of art, a touching image maybe of Mother Mary or a beautiful Buddha statue, an impressive Zen calligraphy or whatever. We feel touched, we feel attracted and inspired and enthusiastic and joy, devotion, and faith fill our heart. It's a kind of faith that can cause us to to make contact, maybe begin with a spiritual practice, enter a path. It's comparable to the phase of falling in love in a relationship. It's the honeymoon phase. When I first met my teacher, Tibetan Lama, Geshirapna in India, or when I first met the Dalai Lama personally, I felt that way, enthused, inspired, and very trusting. Or when I was first introduced to Vipassana meditation at the retreat in India, again, there was a lot of enthusiasm and faith of that kind. It feels like coming home, or as if everything were suddenly clear. Though maybe not much is clear, it doesn't have to do with whether it's really clear, but that's how it feels. It's like, wow, this first enthusiasm. Or we feel that we just discovered something we always knew quite deeply. Moments of bright, inspiring, or enthusiastic faith are important in our life. They can change our life completely and transform ourselves. Yet this enthusiastic faith can also be dangerous because it lacks an element of wisdom. Therefore, it can easily become blind faith, still enthusiastic, but rather blind. Or it can become or stay mere belief and then stay that way. Not verified faith or mere belief tends to become rigid 
critical investigation of the person or the guru or the teacher or the teaching or the method we believe in is then unwished for, is undesirable. We don't want to have the thing we blindly believe in questioned too much. And sometimes even positive good alternatives can be seen as undermining because there's the trust and the faith, but it's still blind. It hasn't been checked out and tested. So in this way, sectarianism and even fundamentalism can arise. And we have this in Buddhism too. And then positive, bright faith degenerates into fanaticism quite easily. So we need to verify, to investigate, to test, try out what has inspired our faith. And that's really the key, quite obviously. It's through our own practice and application that verified faith, the second kind of faith, begins to arise. That's really what we're doing here when we're here for the first or second time. It's a kind of faith that is deeper and more solid and steady than the first kind. It's a less exuberant but more sound and steady kind of enthusiasm. If we remain limited to bright faith, that first kind, we can easily lose our momentum. And unfortunately, we do see this at times. People who have been touched and inspired by the teaching, by someone who lives by it, or by the first taste of their own practice, people who then somehow don't manage to find the time or the interest and the energy necessary to make the practice their own. Their inspiration slowly evaporates, their enthusiasm fades, and nothing but a lingering bitter taste of regret remains, which sometimes mean having, means having missed our one chance in a lifetime, entering the gate to happiness and freedom. So it is really important to deepen, verify, and clarify that faith. And of course, faith, even verified faith, isn't enough. We also need the other four indriyas or spiritual faculties of energy, effort, or perseverance, of mindfulness, collectedness and steadiness, and of wisdom. And if we do apply and generate this in a consistent way, we start to see and experience the healing and liberating powers of the practice for ourselves in our own experience. We begin to feel lighter, freer, kinder, wiser. And then the verified faith becomes certainty, becomes eventually unshakable faith beyond all doubt, which is the fruit of a mature practice. In this way, bright, enthusiastic faith becomes verified faith and eventually unshakable faith. 
virya, effort, or energy, is the second quality or the second indriya here. A text says effort or energy should be seen as the root of all realizations. A really, very obviously important quality. This virya or effort is a indriya or a spiritual shaping faculty because it overcomes laziness. The word virya really means heroic or heroinic. Heroinic? Is that the female form? It points at an important aspect of this quality. Burmese master Upandita Sayadaw often speaks about heroic effort with respect to a consistent, continuous application of effort to being mindful, to being present. What we try to do here is certainly very demanding, and it's not for cowards, to expose oneself to oneself the way we do it here, for hours, for days, even weeks, even years. It takes courage. At times we believe or we hope that the practice of meditation, the life of spirituality, is a matter of following our heart. And I often hear that. I'm just following my heart. Almost that. Not quite, though. It's a subtle nuance. Achan Sumero says, it's not a matter of following our heart, but it's a matter of training our heart. Again, it takes that effort, that enthusiasm, and that courage to really train our heart. The Lama Tsongsar Kensi Rinpoche calls this quality discipline. He says, with discipline, it's very interesting. It's something we don't want to have. It's something we want to have around us. So discipline, effort, energy. Most important here is that we understand clearly what it is that we make our effort for. And Krishnamurti made an interesting statement in this respect. He said, it's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. It does take tremendous interest, tremendous effort and attention. But it's not the effort to change thing, things, to control them, to manipulate or to improve them according to our wishes and ideas, even according to our ideas of freedom or our wishes of being free. But rather, it's the effort to see reality, to see the truth as it is. It's the real seeing, the, the clear seeing and understanding that liberates, not the wanting to be free. So it's the effort to come back to where we already are, to mindfully feel and perceive what's present right here and now. And that's certainly not always easy, but it's extraordinarily simple. It's very simple. You want to do that 
exercise for a moment. If you feel your right hand just where it is right now. It's very easy, isn't it? Just takes the effort to go there with your attention and then you feel. I feel a little cool here. The rest of the hand is warm. Now, if you would want to feel this hand differently from how it feels, like you decide you want it really freezing cold, you would really have to make a lot of effort and try hard and probably be useless. That's what we often do. It doesn't look so extreme like in this case, but we make the effort to be mindful and we're in touch with the experience and then we don't like it. It's different from how it should be. <laughs> and the hard work starts. And we said, I had really, it was really difficult in my meditation. It's, when you look at it, very often it's, it was unpleasant or it was not the way I wanted it. And I tried really hard for 45 minutes to make it the way I wanted. <laughs> and I didn't succeed. It was a really difficult time. What this is asking for, the effort is to make the effort to contact what is and be with it. That can be difficult, demanding if it's not what, how we like it to be. And yet it's very, very simple. It's from that seeing things as they are that we learn. Now to make things a bit more complicated, Let's look at how right effort is described traditionally. Right or appropriate effort is said to be fourfold. Causing wholesome mind states that are not yet present in our heart and mind to arise, like mindfulness, kindness. (coughs) Secondly, strengthening wholesome mind states already present giving them the strength, supporting them. Thirdly, avoiding unwholesome negative mind states that are not yet present in us. When we already know, you know, I've thought this thing 38 times already today, and each time I really get into trouble, I say, okay, 39 times is enough. I'm not going to do it many more times. Avoiding that. Number four, letting go of unwholesome mind states that are already present in us. Not to feed them, not to get lost in them, but meet them with kindness and mindfulness and they'll lose their power. But hearing this, one might get the impression that a lot has to be done, a lot has to be changed, controlled and fabricated. Yet in fact, what it takes to achieve all this is the appropriate kind of mindfulness or awareness. Whenever we are present with an interested, careful, non-judgmental, caring or friendly mindfulness, the fourfold effort is already achieved or achieves itself. When we see how things are and We allow them to be, but yet we're wakeful enough not to get lost in them, not to get carried away and identified by them. Unwholesome mind states will not get fed and they'll just stay a while and then change by themselves and disappear. While the mindfulness 
and the friendly or kind attitude already is the wholesome part that we need to bring in. A kind of wholesome space of awareness that will engender and strengthen more wholesomeness and cause unwholesomeness to lose momentum and to heal. So the appropriate effort really is to cultivate the third spiritual faculty, which is right, mindfulness. We have faith, we have effort and energy. The third faculty, right, mindfulness, is the heart of this practice. It's called sati. The word sati is related to the word to remember. To remember to to be present in this moment, to be awake, to be attentive and aware. And it's not a judgmental, it's not evaluating critical mindfulness, but an interested, kind and equanimous, sensing, recognizing and seeing of what is right now. The effort to be aware, to be mindful, isn't an act of will or force, but a waking up to see what is, waking up to what is already our experience in this moment. Ramdas says it's an act of tuning. We tune into this moment's experience over and over and over again. What needs to be part of the mindfulness we're talking about here is a quality of great care, of deep interest, and as much as possible also of continuity. Here's the well-known saying of the lay Thai teacher, Achan Cha. He says, your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning. It should continue until you fall asleep at night. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. Some people think the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I've seen chickens sit on their nests for days on end. (laughs) What's important is only that you keep watchful, whether you're walking or sitting or going to the bathroom. What is needed is the quality of of silence, careful listening. The Sufi Kabir says, Why do they call God in such a loud voice in their prayer at dusk? Surely the Holy One is not deaf. She hears the delicate ankles that, the delicate bells that ring on the ankles of the feet of a tiny insect as it walks. So it's that kind of quality. Imagine like little ants with little bells on their anklets. <laughs> As they walk, it goes cling, cling, cling. It's that quality we want to bring, almost that quality. Mindfulness. What does it mean to be mindful of this moment? It's not thinking about the moment. It's not analyzing this moment's experience not comparing or judging or changing or controlling it. 
It means is that we make contact and feel what's present. I know I'm repeating myself, but sometimes it's good to be quite clear. It's just that. We connect with the breath or with the pleasant or unpleasant or neutral body sensations, as we have done mostly these last two days. We're aware of our sense experience, of hearing, of seeing, of smelling, of tasting, when they're present. We're mindful of our feelings, emotions, and various mental factors, but not lost in them, knowing that they're present, feeling them, and yet not identified and lost with them. And we know when thinking, when ideas and concepts are present in the mind, again, without being identified or so caught up in them. Basically, we're mindful and present with any experience that arises at the present moment. This right or appropriate mindfulness is an indriya, is a spiritual shaping faculty because it awakens us from unawareness, from mechanical, habitual ways of acting and being and from identification with experience, from being lost in it. My teacher, Nyoshil Ken Rinpoche, wrote this poem on mindfulness. Being Tibetan, he uses very evocative, sometimes also very blunt language and imagery, as you'll see. Mindfulness is the mirror of mind. I am the mirror of mindfulness. Look undistractedly at the nature of the mind. Mindfulness is the root of the Dharma. Mindfulness is the main practice of the path. Mindfulness is a staff for the mind to lean on. Mindfulness is the friend of primordial wisdom awareness. Mindfulness is the support of Mahamudra, Dzogchen, and Madhyamika, which are Tibetan wisdom practices. Without mindfulness, one will become, one will be overcome by Mara, the personification of what is unwholesome. Without mindfulness, one is carried away by laziness. Through lack of mindfulness, all negative actions are committed. Through lack of mindfulness, one's aims cannot be accomplished. To be without mindfulness is to be like a heap of shit. To be without mindfulness is to slumber in an ocean of piss. To be without mindfulness is to be a lifeless corpse. Friends, I request you, take mindfulness as support. Hey, have their own way of saying things. <laughs> I was told not to read this in America. Took a chance. Faith, effort or energy. Number three, mindfulness. Continual effort to be aware and mindful and present brings about collectedness and concentration, the fourth of these indriyas, 
the fourth spiritual shaping faculty. Mindfulness is comparable to the light, to the brightness which makes it possible to see things when you have a candle or a light. Collectedness or concentration is the steadiness of a flame, of a lamp, which allows for a clearer, more precise, more profound seeing, more steady seeing. Collectedness or steadiness is an indriya or a spiritual shaping faculty because it brings distractedness, scatteredness, and restlessness under control. Collectedness, concentration, is defined as a quality which enables the mind to abide one-pointedly on an object for a prolonged period of time. Collectedness and steadiness is the most helpful and supportive quality of heart and mind, particularly in meditation, but of course also elsewhere in life. In order to develop this collectedness and steadiness, we need to strengthen two specific qualities of mind. And that's really very practical in terms of what we're doing here. They are the first two of the so-called jhana factors, or factors of absorptions. They're called in Pali vitaka and vichara. The first vitaka means applied attention, which is going towards the object to make contact, to aim, going towards the breath, towards the sensations, towards the sound, the hearing, to connect. It's the act of applying mindfulness to the object, to the experience of the moment. The second one, vichara, means sustained attention, staying with the object, holding the object, connecting with the in-breath, and then staying connected as long as it lasts, connecting with the out-breath, and then holding that contact as long as the out-breath lasts. The sound that calls the attention and being mindful of hearing and stay connected as long as the sound lasts until it disappears and then come back and connect again with the breath. Stay with it. The second one is the sustaining of the mindfulness on the object. Again, the first is the movement towards the object, making of contact with the breath or the tension in the shoulder or whatever. Second one is staying with the object, holding of the contact. Like the first is like hitting the bell. Second one is the sound that stays for a while. Or it's like grasping a plate and then drying it, holding the contact. Strengthening these qualities of Applied attention and sustained attention generates collectedness, generates concentration and steadiness of mind. Doing it with continuity deepens the collectedness and the steadiness. Much the way like the the rubbing of two pieces of wood will generate heat and eventually fire if we do it long enough and consistently enough. 
take long breaks in between. It cools down, then we have to rub again, and it gets hot, and then we stop again, it gets cold again. So it's more to really stay with it that's helpful. And yet all this faith, this effort, this mindful and concentrated awareness really serves one purpose. It's creating the conditions for insight, for wisdom to arise, which is the fifth spiritual faculty. Since it's through wise and clear seeing that equanimity, serenity, inner freedom, and also love and compassion arise. The Pali word panya for understanding or wisdom is related to pa, which means right or correct, and nya, knowing, understanding. So panya or wisdom here means correct comprehension of reality, correct insight into how things are, and into the processes of the heart and mind, process of existence. This kind of wisdom or insight eliminates or illumines or enlightens us from ignorance, from delusion, from unrealistic perception of things, of life. And that's why it's an indriya or a spiritual shaping faculty, the fifth of them. What panya or wisdom sees clearly There's many things, many insights into the functioning of the mind, into our habits, into patterns. But very essentially here, it's that it sees clearly the impermanence of all things in existence, the changing nature of all phenomena as they come and go, outside or within ourselves or the world. There's nothing solid or fixed, but a dynamic process of constantly arising, constantly changing and disappearing, and again arising experience. There's nothing solid, nothing we can grasp or hold on to and then keep. It's really much like a dream or like a reflection, like a mirage that often looks like solid, like the real thing, but then upon investigating, it isn't. It's fleeting. An American Indian saying goes, what's life? It's the flash of a firefly firefly in the night. It's the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And Yashul Ken Rinpoche writes, All the dharmas, all the phenomena, all things, though thought to be permanent, they do not last. When examined, examined, they are just empty forms. They appear without true existence. Look outward at the appear, appearing objects. Like the water in a mirage, They're more delusive than delusion, unreal like dreams and delusions. They resemble a reflected moon or a rainbow. 
They look like real, but you can't grasp and hold on to them. Look inward at your own mind. It seems quite exciting when not examined. But when examined, there's not much to it. It cannot be identified saying, this is it, here it is. But it's elusive, like mist. In its nature, sky-like and boundless. We meditate in order to get directly in touch with the fact of impermanence, the fact of the ingraspability of all things. That's why we practice and develop these five indriyas. As Krishnamurti says, it's the truth, and it's seeing and understanding and touching the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. We know that this world, that all things are impermanent, are in constant flux, and are not graspable. And yet, in spite of knowing better, we hold on to things, we hold on to people, we hold on to situations, and we cling to them and want to keep them, and thus create tremendous amounts of suffering for ourselves, unwittingly. But whenever we directly see and experience the dynamic, non-graspable nature of all things, we let go. We allow things to be in their own way. We're willing to dance to the rhythm of the universe rather than endlessly struggle against it in the hope that the universe will eventually adjust to my wishes, you know, dance to my tunes. The experience, the insight, which is deep enough to really touch us, to really transform and liberate our inner attitudes, our inner being, that's what is meant by wisdom, by panya or prajna. On the way, of course, we don't only need insight and wisdom. We need also loving kindness and compassion just as a bird needs two wings to be able to fly. Yet when insight and wisdom is genuine and deep, there does arise a deep sense of connectedness and care for living beings and for all of life. The Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj expressed this quite poetically, and I'd like to close with this. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. Love tells me that I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. I'd like to just sit quietly for a moment. Wisdom tells me that I'm nothing. Love tells me that I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows.
This talk was given by Fred's on All Minute Insight Meditation Society on July 14, 2003. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.